Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We are in an increasingly serious drought, but by and large, Californians haven't responded to appeals to reduce their water use. So now water districts across the state are putting mandatory restrictions in place. In Southern California, the Metropolitan Water District, which supplies water to millions of people in several counties, has declared a first-of-its-kind water shortage emergency. Starting in June, the roughly 6 million MWD customers who rely on water from the State Water Project, which gets its water from the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta, will be restricted in their outdoor water use to only one day a week. Officials estimate that the State Water Project will only be able to deliver about 5% of its normal allocation this year. Now looking ahead, the Metropolitan Water District says even stricter water usage measures may be implemented, including a total ban on outdoor irrigation, which could come as early as September. Meanwhile, in the Bay Area, nearly a million and a half people in Alameda and Contra Costa counties now face new drought restrictions. The East Bay Municipal Water District has approved a mandatory 10% reduction in water usage compared to 2020 levels. But it could have been worse. The original resolution was for a 15% reduction, which some board members like Frank Mellon supported. The 15% sends a message that water is a precious resource. If we don't use the water, there's more water left for other districts, other uses, uh, for farmers who need that water for their food crops, uh, for fish and the other aquatic animals that want to have that water in the river. The Water Board agreed to revisit the reduction amount in November when it will have new data on how much users actually conserve over the summer. Last month, Governor Newsom ordered urban water suppliers to implement more aggressive conservation measures. He also directed the State Water Board to consider a ban on watering what he called non-functional grass at businesses and other properties. A proposal by Governor Gavin Newsom to impose a new form of court-ordered treatment for people with severe mental illnesses got approval in its first state Senate hearing yesterday. But as KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports, the CARE Court's idea is also receiving opposition from civil rights and homeless advocacy groups. The Community Assistance Recovery and Impairment Court is the state's latest effort to address a persistent challenge in California how to ensure adequate mental health care and services to residents in need, particularly people who are also homeless. The new care courts could order counties to provide participants with treatment and other services, including a plan for housing. State Senator Thomas Umberg, co-author of the bill, said the goal is to collaborate with participants in their care plan. At the hearing, he addressed some concerns from critics. It is not conservatorship. Care court does not create a path to arrest. It does not allow for forced involuntary medication. Care court does not involve secure facilities. Finally, care court does not take away rights. 
But Andy Imperato, executive director of Disability Rights California, called out some contradictions in the bill and had questions about whether the new courts would really help. How do you have a court-ordered care plan without force? And the bill explicitly says you can't order housing. So if the court can't order housing, how are we going to ensure that the housing is prioritized? The proposal now heads to the Senate Health Committee for another hearing. For The California Report, I'm Erin Baldessari. Nurses at University of California Medical Centers will protest UC management today. That in response to staffing issues that the nurses say have been ongoing through the pandemic. KQD Shireen Kareem has the details. Nurses at UCLA and UCSF say they are continuing to work under unsustainable conditions. And like many other health workers across the state, nurses are getting assigned more patients than they can keep up with. David Yamada is a registered nurse at UCLA and says both nurses and patients suffer when these ratios are out of balance. You know, we're not going to settle for just mere words of appreciation of our service or our work. If you truly appreciate us, please provide us the resources that we need to take care of our patients in an optimal manner. The UCSF and UCLA protests come days after other nurse protests where thousands of workers walked off the job in Northern California at Sutter Health and Sanford Medical Centers. For the California Report, I'm Shereen Cream in Westwood. Let's turn to the pandemic. What little is known about long COVID in children and teenagers suggests that it can be just as disabling for them as it is for older adults. In Los Angeles, KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier spoke to one family who connected the dots before the doctors. On a Monday morning last August, 15-year-old Lucas Garcia was getting ready to leave his family's apartment for the second week of his sophomore year. Everything seemed normal, but shortly after we were about to walk out the door, I started feeling sick and I started running to the restroom. Lucas and his parents thought it may have been food poisoning, but a test at a local urgent care confirmed it was COVID. Here's Lucas's dad, Robert Garcia. The doctor starts to go into, you know, keep him at home for two weeks. When he was telling me this, I could not believe what I was hearing. He was shocked because the entire Garcia family had already had COVID once in December of 2020. Now that they were all fully vaccinated, Robert couldn't believe that Lucas contracted COVID again. That's what was hard when he would ask, you know, when will I get better? And the doctors and mom and I were... Like, we don't know. Lucas suffered at home from severe head and body aches. He became so sensitive to sound that he asked his parents to whisper. The TV was too bright to watch. Walking to the bathroom left him exhausted. As the weeks dragged on, his father recognized the symptoms. Both me and my wife had long COVID. Uh, for me, it felt like months. Long COVID is a term devised by patients to describe the lingering symptoms they experience well after the initial infection. Symptoms vary widely, but include fatigue, cognitive problems, anxiety, depression, and insomnia, as well as heart, lung, and gastrointestinal symptoms. Lucas had almost all of these symptoms for months. There was no visible sign of me getting better until I got to Children's Hospital, and then they said, you know, we specialize in this sort of thing, so there's a chance we can help you. And just a small chance was a miracle to me at that time. Lucas was extremely worried how long his symptoms would last. Would they ever go away? And would he be sick forever? Dr. Sindo Mohandas is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She treats children who have long COVID. So having seen other patients in our clinic, we are 
first of all able to offer some perspective about how the other children have been doing and provide hope that even though these symptoms seem to be all consuming at present, there is hope that with time they will resolve. Coronavirus infections vary widely. Some people have relatively mild symptoms, more like a cold, particularly if they have been vaccinated. For others, the infection is potentially life-threatening. About one million people have died from COVID in the U.S. alone. But anyone, no matter the severity of their initial illness, even those who are young and healthy, can develop long COVID. Dr. Mohandas says her youngest long COVID patient is just nine months old. There is no direct pharmacological treatment for long COVID. So the other important thing that we do in our clinic is uh, suggest lifestyle modification, especially given the severe degree of fatigue. Mohandas estimates between 10 to 20 percent of children infected with the coronavirus will develop long COVID. In L.A. County, that could mean thousands of kids. I think you have to understand these are long symptoms. It's months and sometimes more than a year to resolve symptoms. Lucas ended up missing three months of school, finally returning in November, though he says the brain fog continued. It was extremely hard at first to even just read simply, but every week it just got better and better. But now it's significantly improved. It took six months before Lucas felt like his normal self. Now he's part of a nationwide study to better understand the condition in children. Dr. Mohandas says the best way to avoid long COVID is to get children vaccinated. So they decrease the chances of getting long COVID. If there was a breakthrough infection and someone did go on to have long COVID after vaccine, the number of symptoms they have is nearly halved. In the coming months, Dr. Mohandas expects to see more children in her clinic with undiagnosed long COVID, as well as families hoping for answers. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Legislation that would bring more statewide oversight on air pollution to parts of the Central Valley has passed out of a state assembly committee this week. The bill from Fresno Democrat Joaquin Arambola would require the California Air Resources Board to develop new air quality regulations for the agricultural industry, oil refineries, and manufacturing facilities in the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District. Here's Arambola speaking at a hearing of the Assembly's Natural Resources Committee. In 1997, the United States Environmental Protection Agency established ambient air quality standards to address the grave health impacts of air pollution. 25 years later, 
the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District still hasn't met those standards, let alone more recent ones. The status quo is not acceptable. The bill would also allow the Air Resources Board to conduct independent inspections at refineries and other facilities. Tom Jordan, a senior policy advisor with the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, said it's already on track to meet national air quality standards. We are in no way saying our work here is done. We continue to look at, at, at those areas where we have the opportunity to get more emission reductions, but we do feel that we're the most qualified to do that in our region. A recent annual report from the American Lung Association found that Fresno County is the dirtiest place in the country when it comes to short-term particle pollution. And every county in the San Joaquin Valley failed all three of the American Lung Association's clean air tests for ozone, short-term, and long-term particulate pollution. The Los Angeles County Sheriff on Tuesday said he was not involved in covering up an incident in March of 2021 when a deputy knelt on a handcuffed inmate's head for more than three minutes. At a news conference yesterday, Sheriff Alex Villanueva described Commander Alan Castellano, who made the charge in a lawsuit as a disgruntled employee making false claims. And in an unusual move, Villanueva also announced that Los Angeles Times reporter Aline Chekmedvian, who first reported on the case, is part of his criminal investigation. Well, she received the information and then she put, put it to her own use. What she receives legally and puts her own use and what she receives illegally and you, or the LA Times use it, I'm pretty sure that's a huge, a complex area of law and uh, freedom of the press and all that. However, when it's stolen material, at some point, you actually become part of the story. The LA Times editor condemned Sheriff Inouye's action, calling it an illegal attempt to criminalize news reporting. And after a barrage of similar criticism, Villanueva said he was not pursuing criminal charges against any reporters. And in other law enforcement news, a state audit of five law enforcement agencies found racist or other biased conduct by police officers at all of them and inadequate investigations into that conduct. KQD's Alex Emsley reports. The state auditor looked at the prison system, San Jose, Stockton, and San Bernardino police departments, as well as the L.A. County Sheriff, and found racist behavior on duty and online including six officers who'd posted support for extremist groups like the Proud Boys and Three Percenters. The auditor also found that internal investigations are geared to look for only the most blatant kinds of bias and often let officers off the hook. The agencies largely agreed with the auditor's findings and recommendations to improve internal investigations, training, and promote greater diversity in recruiting. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hemsley. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, April 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and talk to you tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, 
just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.